Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the latest installment of Building the Scottish State with myself, Dr. Mark McNaught. And I have the great pleasure of having with me a uh, professor and um, a lot of other things, uh, Alf Baird, uh, with us to speak about uh, the Treaty of Union, uh, independence, uh, maritime policy, and whatever else comes up. So first of all, Alf, thanks so much for being with us this evening. Thank you, Mark. Okay, let's start out with the Treaty of Union. Uh, you know, we, we were discussing, in our, when we were discussing the other night, the idea that a referendum is not a good a, a good way to go for some of the reasons that you, you, you can explain. Uh, but uh, and as you were pointing out, the the it was accepted by Tories and many and, and very hardcore conservatives up until recently, at least, <clears throat> that simply electing a majority of um, Scottish uh, you know nationalist Scottish MPs would be enough to you know to to to, to have independence H how do you see that and what do you think has changed uh you know over uh, over the inter since say thatcher that this is not really being being widely considered as as, a, as an option for becoming independent well it, i think it's always been accepted that uh, by the the political es establishment that in 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 england as well as scotland that a majority of uh, nationalist mps uh, was sufficient to for Scotland to withdraw from the, the, the Union and the treaty. In fact, in, in many territories, uh, a majority, once a majority of nationalist members advocating independence are elected to a, legis a legislature, that's normally, uh, it, it means uh, de jure independence, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, which is, is the case in, in, in even in many former colonies. Scotland has additional uh, benefits in having a, a treaty based alliance. So the UK is basically, a, as, as far as I could see in my research, it's basically a treaty based alliance arrangement uh, where you have a joint governing administration and a joint parliament, but essentially the sovereign entities, the treaty signatory parties under international law are always uh, uh, at liberty to withdraw from the alliance as, as, as is understood in any treaty based arrangement. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And uh, how do you understand? Uh, tell, tell us a little bit historically about how the Treaty of Union came about. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's sort of it's often portrayed as being, you know, voluntary that, the, you know, the Scots, you know, it's it's a voluntary union. Therefore, Scotland's not a colony. And I know that you don't see it that way. So if you can explain, you know, what why is Scotland if, if it was tr if it was uh, a voluntary union, why do you think uh, you know why do people not see uh, why do people some people see Scotland as a colony well the, the the research I did on that from my book is a, is, a, is another aspect but I I think going back to what Kenny McCaskill said to you in a, a previous interview uh, I agree with what he said that we, we know that historically uh, and Professor Tom Devine has come up uh, come up with this view, I think, as well, that there was a lot of coercion going on pre-1707 uh, for Scotland to be pushed into a union uh, with armies massing nearby and other threats coming around. Uh, bear in mind that Scotland has always been a, a target for, for, for English uh, elites uh, for 500 years previously. So it, it wasn't anything new, uh, this, uh, this type of thing. And what we saw were, were uh, elites within Scotland uh, deciding, of course, there was no democracy at the time. Democracy was, was, was rather, <laughs> you couldn't really define the, the situation at the time as democratic. There was uh, uh, only an elite running uh, the Scottish Parliament at the time, uh, self-elected largely. 
And these elites uh, voted for the union for their own self-interest. Uh, the people as a, as a whole were totally opposed to the union and there was civil unrest and riots. There was also a subsequent uh, armed conflict in, in the 1745. So th there was, there was, uh, it was no way a democratic treaty. Uh, it was, it was, it was, and you, if you find, if you see within the treaty whose interests were protected, it was the three main institutions of bourgeoisie, if you like, but also aristocrats were protected within that uh, treaty arrangement. I include in that uh, context the judiciary. Uh, the clergy and the educational establishments, universities and so on. So there were various interests protected, their status and privileges were protected and still are under the Treaty of Union. So this was a treaty based on self-interest uh, of elites. It wasn't uh, a treaty democratic and it wasn't undertaken uh, or agreed to by the, the vast majority of anyone in Scotland. Okay. All right. And do, do you see a way of, um, and what would you, what would you think would be necessary for uh, Scotland withdrawing from the treaty, the treaty of union to be in, inter, uh, interna, uh, internationally recognized? Uh, I don't know whether that could be adjudicated by the UN, uh, uh, their decolonization uh, committee, or I mean, what possible scenarios do you see of, uh, of Scotland, of maybe Scottish MPs withdrawing from the, the, the Treaty of Union and then have it be internationally recognized. Because as you said in our conversation last Saturday, many, many people are just not aware of the nature of what Britain yeah. actually is. Well, that's right, Mark. The international community are generally unaware that Scotland and England are only joined together by a single treaty, uh, a treaty of, the Treaty of Union. Uh, most uh, countries in, in, uh, around the world uh, and, and supranational organisations considered Scotland to be a territory of the UK, <laughs> uh, and 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 also they have no concept of the uh, question of the sovereignty of the people, uh, which is distinct uh, for Scotland and also agreed uh, by various legislators, including Westminster and Holyrood, that sovereignty remains uh, with the Scottish people themselves. So we have a treaty, we have sovereignty. In a sense, we, we, Scotland is already uh, independent. Mm -hmm. it, it, it just needs to assert and exercise sovereignty. And that is normally done, as I said at the beginning, uh, through once a, a majority of nationalist representatives are elected uh, in a country, they hold the sovereignty of the people and they are required to exercise and assert that sovereignty. So far with the SNP, uh, they've not asserted that sovereignty. They've mm -hmm. failed to do so. And that brings us back to the post-colonial literature, which explains why that is the case. Mm -hmm. Okay. And why is that the case? And and, and I, I know that there are people out there that would, uh, and it's only dawned on me recently, you know, uh, uh, you know that, that Scotland is in many ways a colony. You know, I mean, my dad was Scottish and he would have never characterize Scotland that way. Uh, and, and I know a lot of people don't. And I think a lot of people, you know, believe that it was a voluntary union that uh, and that we, you know, they've been through the wars together and that uh, we share so much, you know, with, with the English and the other uh, in Wales and Ireland. But w in what sense do you view Scotland as a colony? Well, it's it's not just me. It's, it's the research I undertook for my book, uh, Dun Hodden, uh, The Social Political Determinants of Scottish Independence, was also a study of uh, colonialism uh, yeah. and what that uh, came up with, with in in term, in the theoretical sense. Uh, and the three dimensions of colonialism are uh, political control is out with the country, 
the country is subject to economic and uh, exploitation and plunder, uh, and is also or may a colony may or may not be subject to settler colonization. Uh, so, when you look at in detail all of these aspects, it's pretty clear that Scotland fits pretty well, uh, pretty nicely into that, almost like a, a three hundred year old glove, <laughs> if, if you like. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, the, the, that brings us then to the reality that that yes, uh, although there is a treaty, it's not really respected. It's a bit like a marriage agreement where people might enter into a marriage agreement, but it might not necessarily be an equal marriage, mm-hmm. and it might it, it might have one bullying party, a <laughs> yeah. one dominant party that takes the spoils, and the others left with with nothing, or very little, or, or certainly less than their share. So that's colonialism is is that it's basically uh, colonialism is force, but it's also exploitation of the assets and resources that are available, and it leads one party, one nation in this case, to be underdeveloped as to what it would be had it been in control of its uh, its affairs. That brings us to then the post-colonial literature, which tells us, gives us a kind of template about the process and what happens when you have a dominant national party, as we have. And what the, the what that literature tells us is it settles into uh, what they call an accommodation with the colonial power, an accommodation with colonialism, where it doesn't push independence. I mean, the SNPs had six majorities. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 it's basically done nothing with any of them. Most former colonies would have declared independence long before now with the first national majority, and that was what the Tories previously back in the nineties would have accepted as well. So we they have that. Uh, the reason they go into this accommodation with colonialism, of course, is is, is a couple of reasons. One is one is they don't really understand what independence is, and. Uh, if, in, if if Scotland is subject to colonial oppression, then independence then becomes decolonization, mm-hmm. uh, which which is a realization that people then have to try and understand. And this narrative, uh, this issue hasn't really been discussed because it also leads to to what we call a colonial mindset uh, in many respects, which holds a people back from establishing their their liberation, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the other factor is the. Dominant national party tends to be more the bourgeoisie elements, uh, and and therefore they like their power, they like their the rewards that they have from this, and they become in effect a colonial administration, uh, and are rewarded as such for that. They then hold back the radical elements and hold down and even persecute the radical elements, as we've seen uh, in the cases with prosecutions of various leading independence campaigners. So the, the dominant national party aligns with the colonial powers to uh, to do this, to hold back the independence movement, the radicals, and to smear them and do whatever they can to, to delay independence. And that's essentially what it's been doing. At the same time, we see the rise of new national parties, uh, which we're seeing in Scotland now with Alba and with others. So we're seeing this whole template is working out. The post-colonial template is, is, is happening as we watch now, mm-hmm. uh, and it has all the same characteristics. Uh, the, the difficulty arises. Uh, things become progressively uh, or deteriorate progressively as col- uh, decolonization is delayed further. Mm-hmm. Okay. And where do you see Scotland along that spectrum? What do you, uh, in in what, what, what stage... I mean, and, and can you give a, a an, an analogous uh, an, an analogy in another uh, British colonial 
country and how they became um, how they became uh, independent, where and where Scotland is along that that spectrum. Well, there's many, many examples, but I think the, the, the closest example might well be Ireland. <laughs> uh, and it, I don't think it's any accidents we, 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 that we saw the other weekend, uh, 38 orange walks mm-hmm. in Scotland. Uh, and to think that Scotland uh, is unlike Ireland uh, too much, I think, would be, would be wishful thinking. Uh, I think what we see in Scotland is 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 a, is a, is a the, the, we see the, the the movement of different sides of the of the of the divide, if you like, uh, the colonial side and the anti-colonial side. So that's what we're seeing. That's what we're witnessing in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, how it pans out uh, is difficult to see. But at the end of the day, the colonial power has to back off, has mm-hmm. to back down. Uh, f- for for a people to be free, as it were, uh, otherwise we're <clears throat> we're in a situation where uh, colonial force or force, if you like, will worsen from the establishment, from those in power, uh, mm-hmm. as we see uh, with the the various uh, entities uh, in terms of the, the persecutions of independence campaigners, and also the restrictions of marches, the restrictions of freedoms, liberties, the enactment of new laws such as the hate crime law. These are all part of the same process mm-hmm. that we have to be aware of. We have to also remember that if we go back to the, the colonialism thesis, colonialism itself is racism. and uh, It's based on the idea that uh, one people on their culture and their ethnicity is inferior to another. And all peoples in, in, in self-determination conflict are linguistically divided. And the thesis in my book was that the conclusion was that this is heavily involved related to language and culture. Mm-hmm. As it is in Ireland now, we see that divide is basically linguistic and cultural uh, rather than religious. So mm-hmm. it, yeah. although religion is also part of culture. But, but let's look at it in that sense. And we see that that's always invariably the divide in, in, in peoples in self-determination conflict is linguistic. Uh, so uh, colonialism we know is prejudice and racism, but it, where there is this conflict uh, between two sides like this, it can turn pretty nasty into, into a form of fascism. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the post-colonial writers regard uh, fa- colonialism to be the root of fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can see how states sometimes, uh, uh, oppressive states, can sometimes get into very, very dodgy uh, actions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, you, and when we spoke the other evening, you were expressing reservations about the uh, a, a, about a second referendum uh, as being a means to it because of the because of the um, demographic changes that have occurred. It may, it may have accelerated since 2014. Could you exp- uh, explore that more? Well, uh, again, when I did the research for the book, there was to, to look at the determinants of independence. There are many going back from, as I said, culture, language, uh, colonialism, institutions and demographics is another. Uh, but what we also found in, in, in the recent uh, literature is that a referendum is not uh, a requirement as a matter of law for independence. No. No. Yeah. Now, if we take that as the standpoint, as a basis, then we can say, well, why are we having a referendum <laughs> if yeah. it's not? And the other question here is we know that Scotland has a treaty. We also know that Scots are sovereign. 
uh, and our representatives are sovereign representatives and it's democratic to elect uh, a democratic majority, a majority if it's elected, it's elected democratically. So that's another democratic mechanism. We've already done that six times and still the SNP remains in its uh, post in, in the literature uh, petrification. It's petrified of moving. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't want to upset the, the colonial power. So uh, that's the reality we're in. They don't want to move. They are petrified. They're settled into their uh, the, the current uh, uh, status. Uh, but the, the issue uh, as well is, 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 is that, uh, sorry, what was your question again, Mark? You've, I've lost it a wee bit. Oh, oh just about the, uh, about the demographic changes. That ah, the demog yeah. yeah, if yeah. we go back to that, what I found in the research was uh, uh, two things. One is uh, that uh, Scotland is using uh, a local government franchise yeah. for, for national referendums and national elections at Holyrood. Now, these are national elections, but we're using what is called a local government franchise. That's based on residence. Now, countries only use that a local government French franchise for municipal elections, yeah. for local council elections. They don't yeah. use uh, that resident, re, a resident franchise for national referendums. And that's that's across the world. So uh, you have to be. Uh, yeah, I, I just just for an example, I live in France. Uh, I when I was a UK uh, citizen, uh, before I got my permanent residency card, I could vote in in, in uh, uh, municipal and um, European elections, but definitely not, uh, you know, parliamentary yeah. or presidential. Yeah. I mean, uh, if, 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 now, if now, I I vote in, now I can't vote in anything. So. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we so universally, uh, uh, a local government uh, franchise is not is not used for national elections. So this, that's that's the first thing. It's an irregular franchise that has been used. And I think that relates to to going back to what uh, Tony Blair described Holyrood as a bit of a parish council. So it, it, Westminster regard it in a sense as, as well, Holyrood is basically a spending department of Westminster, uh, mm -hmm. but they, it's regarded in a, in a sense as a local government uh, entity. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why it's allocated by the civil service, a local government franchise, one would assume. So this, that's irregular. The second factor here is the demographics. And uh, because Scotland doesn't exercise sovereignty over the territory, then it has no control over its borders. Uh, and if we look at the historical census, Scotland's population has fundamentally changed. Uh, Scotland lost between three and four million people. Uh, since the union, mm -hmm. that's half the population. Now that would that was the largest uh, just, loss of just population. To clear, just to be clear, I know that the population is roughly five some uh, five point five million now, and was yeah. it more like ten million back then, or is it more? Uh, no, I'm saying it's lost half its equivalent population of today. Okay, okay. all right, <laughs> but but uh, essentially <clears throat> the loss of three between three and four million people over the last two hundred and fifty years. Uh, uh, was the one of, was perhaps the largest loss of population for a country of Scotland's size and population, mm -hmm. and far far greater than the loss of population from England. So mm -hmm. something was happening here to make Scots leave, and and the evidence that I found in the book was more it suggested a lack of opportunity, mm -hmm. poor housing, uh, illness, and so on. And these these factors and an economy that that was largely set up to serve what we know in, in internal colonialism literature as the core nation, which in this case is England. So mm -hmm. Scotland's economy is not that diverse. It was quite highly specialised, as was Wales and Ireland. 
-hmm. Wales and minerals, Ireland and agriculture, Scotland and heavy industry and, and, and mining and so on as well, uh, as well as food. Uh, and, and fishing and so on, but the the it wasn't as diversified as it would have been, and certainly nowhere near as diverse as England was. Mm -hmm. So Scotland's economy was uh, quite constrained, and they're really to serve the core market of of England and the its empire. Mm -hmm. okay. So it, it's it's its situation was was different. But anyway, going back to demographics, what we found is a lot of. Scots have left, but at the same time, historically, uh, a large, a significant numbers of people were coming in from the rest of the UK, mainly in the professional uh, groups and mainly from England. So, yeah. at the same time as Scotland was losing a lot of people through lack of opportunity and and poor housing and and illness and so on, uh, seeking opportunities elsewhere, uh, we were importing uh, people from mainly England and mainly in the professional classes. In academia, in 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 industry, in government, and so on. That process, since devolution, has accelerated quite significantly. So the population movement from rest UK, particularly England, has increased significantly since the devolved Parliament set up and introduced positive measures, uh, if it's possible, positive social measures. At the same time, England's public sector systems come under tremendous pressure. Uh, England's cities have also changed fundamentally. And we've seen uh, what Professor Danny Dorling uh, remarked and called uh, quite a significant uh, aspect of called white flight, where middle class yeah, white yeah. people in general have moved out of English cities to rural areas and other areas in the, in the UK, including Scotland. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been a, an aspect. Since Brexit, of course, this movement has accelerated even further. Mm -hmm. uh, people have moved in in increasing numbers from England to and the rest of the UK to Scotland uh, for a number of reasons, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But one of which is, of course, the property market mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and the house price values here historically were lower than many parts in, of England, particularly southern England. Yeah, sure. So people have been able to sell a, a, small, a relatively modest uh, property in the south of England and buy something much more substantial in Scotland. Uh, because Scot Scottish sovereignty isn't exercised, there's no control over borders, the, nothing can be done about this, uh, this movement. But essentially that movement uh, is at least half a million people every 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now, in a small population like Scotland's, uh, then that has a significant impact. Over 20 years, that's a million people. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Scotland's birth rate is the lowest in the UK. So the census also tells us that, uh, that Scotland's uh, population is growing, but it's only growing through in-migration. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not growing through, if you like, Scots reproducing themselves. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, and and these, are, these are facts from the census. Uh, as you probably know, the census uh, this year was delayed until next year. Uh, the reasons I'm not quite sure because the census took place in other parts of the UK this year. Uh, but uh, some people have mentioned it might well be due to the independence issue. Uh, the reason why this is important is in my book and in the research that has been done that I've looked at, including the Edinburgh University post-independence referendum research, is that people from rest UK have the highest propensity to vote against Scottish independence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to get a couple of questions, um, there was one pertaining to uh, 
Um, we talk about having a referendum, maybe a plebiscite, but while not on today, while it is not on today's horizon politics, as things as things deteriorate, would you, Professor Baird, rule out uh, completely rule out an eventual um, unilateral declaration of independence? And I, I guess the question arises: I, I would think that you know the withdrawal, that you know a form of that could be the you know the, the Westminster National. Uh, MPs withdrawing from the Treaty of Union. Uh, how would you see that? Uh, I mean, in in what in what uh, if there isn't going to be a if there's no referendum on the horizon, how would um, you know uh, could, could a UDI be done? If so, how? Hmm. Well, I think we have an opportunity every election uh, to to elect uh, a majority of national nationalist representatives to to uh, withdraw Scotland from the treaty. And the last opportunity we, we had was in May. <laughs> it yeah. just passed. Uh, and Alba Party were proposing uh, that as a as basically a basically a plebiscite election in the yeah. sense that uh, if a majority, a supermajority at the time, uh, as Alex Salmon said, if a supermajority was elected, then they would begin negotiating withdrawal from the UK Union then and there. So that's 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 the reality. I think any election is is that opportunity. As I said, the the SNP have had six nationalist majorities, and in most territories around the world, one would be sufficient for independence. Whether it was Malta, whether it was India, where <laughs> doesn't matter where it is, uh, whether it's Ireland and so on. Uh, that is that is the reality, uh, and and it, it just goes back to the where we're into in this post-colonial template. Uh, stuck with uh, a party, a dominant national party that is, is in a sense petrified about moving, unable to move, unwilling to move, uh, and is actually actively holding independence at bay. Okay. And why do you think that is? You mentioned earlier just kind of the idea that they're comfortable, they're serving the colonial administration. Uh, I mean, are, do you think there are other reasons beyond that? Just sort of well, how do you read this, the current situation? Yeah, there may well be reasons we don't know, but the, all I can point to is the post-colonial literature tells us this happens. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it actually tells us this happens. It's one of the good things about research is you can see what's happened before elsewhere. Yeah. And, yeah. and the world is not short of decolonized territories. <laughs> it has certainly, many, not, certainly not the British. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. Britain still has more colonies than any other country, according to the UN, that, that are on the decolonization list, including in many of the, some of the Caribbean offshore uh, offshore equity fund places, if you yeah. like, <laughs> that are kept for strategic reasons. So territories are only kept for, for, for selfish reasons. Uh, seeks its accommodation with the colonial power. It then puts hurdles in the way of radical nationalists that want to take independence forward. It delays independence. Uh, it, by the way, at the same time, they are feathering their own nests. Yeah. Uh, so there is a financial incentive for them not to do anything. Uh, people are continually electing them. They don't have to act. Uh, the other thing we go to here is is the degree of petrification. And, and that is a fear. It's a bit like rabbit in the headlights thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they're standing there with sovereignty in their hands. Uh, but un unwilling to assert it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think fundamentally, I think the other issue here is the people and the politicians don't that are in power don't necessarily understand what independence really is. Mm -hmm. 
And this, then we then go back to what is, what, why is the need for independence? Uh, and it's not a case of reforms in this and that. It's not a case of policies on this and that. Independence is, is, a, is fundamentally about freedom and liberation mm -hmm. from, from another, another entity that's holding, <laughs> that's holding you tight uh, mm -hmm. through the various arms of the state as George Osborne called them. And, and, and that colonialism, we have to remember, is... So Scotland, for example, voted in, in the Brexit uh, vote to, to, to stay in the EU, but by force we are kept in, mm -hmm. if you like. Scotland has had six mandates now for a referendum, but by, by force we are refused one. Mm -hmm. Uh, so th th that probably explains why there is a degree of, 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 of you know, reticence amongst the SNP people. But I think fundamentally, some of the, most of the SNP politicians don't really understand themselves what independence is. Uh, what, what don't they un what don't they understand? I could see from their perspective. Okay, of course we want to be, yeah. become independent. We want to set up a better state. All of that rhetoric, but but what do you what what do they not understand in your view? Well, I think they don't understand that independence. Even if you look at the UN uh, literature on self determination and the Declaration, independence is also about decolonization. Uh, no, that, that's a, that's, a, that's a word that just doesn't come up when you. I mean, it, yeah. it didn't. Yes, come it up. doesn't come up. It doesn't come up. It's not part of the vocabulary. Uh, yeah. But when you analyze it, as I've done for my research, then it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and the same it was the case in Ireland. Uh, I mean, would you regard? I mean, would we regard now Ireland to be a former colony of the UK of England? And of the course. UN does. UN has said that in the past. Yeah. Ireland was a colony and was was mistreated and and uh, terrible injustices inflicted on Ireland uh, and and exploitation. But as I said, the 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 it's, it's not just a case of injustice uh, with colonialism is injustice in all respects, uh, but it's also fundamentally about political and economic exploitation. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. And um, uh, 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 do you think it's possible when we get independence, we can get all of our land back from the royals? And and I, I uh, I'd like to frame that question a little bit. And, and if you could just give us a little bit of the history of the Highland clearances, I'm not an expert on them. From, from what I understand, basically after the uh, maybe it was before as well, but after the Treaty of Union, there was a lot of land given to dukes and earls, you know, in the in Scotland, and then they they cleared off all of you know. The, there was the Highland clearances where they just, you know, put put these people on, often on boats to America or just displaced them. Um, given your knowledge of the history, that's I'm sure more precise than mine. How would how would you describe the Highland clearances, and what what about what what do you think the prospects for reclaiming that land? I have to confess, uh, Mark, I'm not a historian. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, what what I would say is is the 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 clearances were were not just in, in the Highlands. If you if you look at Scotland's loss of population historically, up until particularly the 1930s, uh, and between the late uh, 19th century and the 1930s uh, was when I think some two million people uh, were lost uh, from Scotland. So that was the the high point. And there was empire uh, mechanisms, the empire resettlement law, I think it was called, which basically gave incentives uh, 
to employers and others to move people out of Scotland. So we yeah. talk about the my, 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 I, I'm sure that was uh, my grand my grandfather was I think part of that because he was a yeah. very able member of the civil service. This would have been in the 1950s. And, um, you know, when he, 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 and my dad moved around, he was in Wales for a while for rebuilding, you know, uh, and, uh, but, you know, he was a really good, you know, very, very competent, uh, capable person. And so he, I guess they took him out of Scotland. I, I don't know, you know, but, uh, you know. Well, I, I yeah, know. this is it. Millions of people were not, didn't just leave Scotland. They were incentivized to leave Scotland. Uh, I mean, most, a lot of my family ended up in Australia. Uh, and in fact, in the 60s, in the early 1960s, my father had a ticket, a 10 pound ticket to go to Australia with 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 uh, my mother and the five kids. <laughs> but but due to my grandmother becoming ill, decided uh, to keep us in Edinburgh uh, and uh, work through uh, constant recessions for the next 30 years. <laughs> but, and, and unemployment in the building sector. And before I became an academic, I, I spent some time as as a painter. And uh, in the, when Mrs. Thatcher came into power, uh, right, painting buildings. I was a house painter. Yeah, right, right, my yeah, father yeah. was a house painter, and his father and all my uncles were house painters. So I came from a long line of house painters. But uh, mm -hmm. in 1980, I found myself on a bus from George Square, Square with thousands of uh, other Scottish building tradesmen going to Germany and Spain to work because there was no work here. And this was just part of a long line of the reality of people having to live in poor housing, low wages, uh, low unemployment at extremely high levels in, in many cases. De and then that followed, uh, that, that period then led to deindustrialization, uh, And then the creation of the Scottish Parliament through that, through the pressure of the people uh, coming to bear that something fundamental had to change but this goes back to the point I was making earlier that Scotland's economy, any colonial economy, is really only there to serve the, the mother country, if you like. Mm -hmm. It's it's not uh, developed as it should be. And its people aren't developed. Its people are cast out to the four corners of the world, yeah. <laughs> for God's sake. You know, Scots are everywhere for a reason. Uh, yeah, yeah, but as I yeah. said to you, the, the, the British government of the time, and even back to the 1930s and before, were incentivizing people to leave Scotland. Now, and then at the same time, they were bringing in a meritocracy. Now, this has all the, 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 is all the, fu the functions of colonialism at play here, uh, where people are being displaced uh, intentionally. And, and that's the reality in the historical census, as far mm -hmm. as I can see. Uh, and then you bring that to the current day, uh, and, and we're seeing uh, this displacement, in a sense, continuing, very low, lowest birth rate on record in Scotland, but a population growing through in migration from the rest of the UK, mainly England, and it's mainly property-based and also higher levels of employment-based. Because mm. remember that all the best jobs in Scotland are advertised in the London press, uh -huh. <laughs> which I've compared in a sense. It's a bit like Denmark advertising all their best jobs in, only in Berlin. <laughs> yeah. You know, which which is which is a fact because Denmark's quite a comparable country to Scotland. But anyway, that's the reality of the situation. So Scotland's population is rapidly changing, uh, and again we go back to this question of culture and language, for which forms identity, and that's why they they were big factors in my book. Culture and language form your identity, and uh, uh, just, your just, just, to give a plug, just to give a plug on your book, uh, uh, please tell the, the 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 audience the name of your book and the author. Of yeah. Course. <laughs> yeah, it's called uh, Dunhoden. 
Okay. Uh, the social political determinants of Scottish independence. Okay. It's only available, I think, from Amazon. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> but well, they've got a big business. No, another, imper- another imperialist venture, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that, so that, that, what I found was, you know, these are a lot of the issues I found are things that people don't talk about in the independence debate. The intellectuals uh, don't talk about them, uh, possibly for the the main reason is most of Scotland's intellectuals, certainly in the academic world, tend to be. Uh, more unionist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I was just listening to um, uh, a, a, a lecture by Noam Chomsky on the on the role of intellectuals and the way that they're you know kind of bred to serve power. If they don't say what they're saying, that they would they wouldn't be where they where they are, and yeah. that you know in, you know they have this important role of you know of of, of serving uh, serving state power. And so yeah, uh, I, I, I think. Well, that's- one of the factors I found in my book, one of the subjects is institutions and. Uh, Public institutions, of course, uh, social institutions reflect the social hegemony we have, which is mainly anglophone and mainly unionist. Uh, and this goes back to the fact that Scotland advertises most of its job, most of its best jobs outside Scotland. <laughs> but if you look at the universities as a case study, uh, and I spent twenty five years in one, <laughs> so I, I know a little bit about it. Which, 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 which university? Um, in uh, Edinburgh Napier. Okay one of the new universities in the 1990s. But if you look at the elite universities in particular, as I did, and and three of them, I I found that only about 10% of the academics are actually Scottish. Now, I was a a visiting professor in Norway and certain other countries, uh, and I would say it would be the reverse there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Uh, and I don't know about France. Uh, it's it's pretty much all French. I'm 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 a I'm yeah. an American, but it's maybe te- yeah, it, it's flipped. You know. I'm yeah, you're an odd, an odd one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm the exception. But, but yeah, I definitely. found the same in Italy, where I taught in Italy, and it was all Italian professors. Yeah, and, and, and even and, even the even in the English department where I teach, it's mostly French. I mean, you know, yeah. and they're and so yeah. But yeah, you I'm, have I'm to a, ask yourself. I think among I think maybe among twenty of my colleagues, something like that, they're. Uh, there are four or five of us that are either American or British English mm. type thing or native speakers. The rest are the rest are French, even in the English department. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, what I found in, in that part of the study was, um, yeah, only about ten percent of the academics at elite universities, uh, certain elite universities in Scotland, are, are Scots. And uh, if you look at the researchers coming through doing PhDs, who are the future professors and future academics. Mm. Uh, it's it's it, it's it's probably even worse. There are very few Scots doing PhD work mm-hmm. uh, in these institutions. It's all international students, which is very good and well. But what I'm saying is, Scotland's universities don't necessarily nurture the Scots and don't provide the opportunities that they would under normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Had yeah. Scotland been an independent country, it would be it would be developing its own people to a greater extent. Yeah. Okay. And um, I know that you're uh, you're I'm, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to talk about uh, maritime policies. But uh, uh, t- uh, so uh, t- tell us a little bit about your background in maritime policy and then also how, you know, how Scotland could, uh, you know, trans- radically transform, you know, uh, maritime policy, transportation, uh, ports, yeah. infrastructure, these these types of things. Well, that, this also goes back to to the book in a sense because the the uh, I've worked in many places around the world on research projects, collaborative research work, 
And Scotland has all the features of a, a less developed country in, mm. in maritime sense. Mm. So the great estuaries of the Forth, Clyde and, and Tay have never seen new port infrastructure since practically Victorian times. Mm. Now, as you probably understand, being near Le Havre, uh, yeah. most ports have completely changed in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, as we've seen containerization uh, change world trade. And I started off life before I was a painter as a shipping clerk in Edinburgh, uh, uh, just at the beginning of the container revolution and, and ferry transport as well. Uh, so it's two areas I've studied quite intensely. And, and in fact, my PhD is on uh, container shipping. Okay, so when, uh, so when was this? That, when, um, when was this roughly that you worked in the industry directly? Uh, I started in 1974, 1970s. Okay, so basically the 1970s, pre-Thatcher, if you like, mm -hmm. that's when I learned all about shipping and 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 Scottish trade going the, through the, Scottish the golden <laughs> age of pre-Thatcher. <laughs> but I, what actually happened with shipping in Scotland was quite like many other sectors, companies were bought over by mostly London-based companies, mm -hmm. and then they were they were quickly uh, shut down in many cases or streamlined, which meant job losses. Activities were then transferred mostly down south. So Scottish trade, instead of going out through Scottish ports, was sent down to ports in England. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's what happens when you've got no control over your territory. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so Scotland wasn't uh, competitive in there, thereafter in developing its international trade. Uh, so we, as I say, we've not seen modern port developments in central Scotland now for a very, very long time. So it means our ports are no longer competitive. Uh, in my research, uh, I found that most countries uh, develop their competitive advantage through having, uh, or one of their competitive advantages is in having connectivity, and modern ports is, is one, one of the ways to do that. So, yeah, I've worked on projects to develop the, the ferry service from Recife to Zeebrugge was one of my projects to get super fast ferries to run that service. And uh, they ran it uh, despite uh, expensive port charges and other aspects which chased them away. They, they ran it for a few years uh, and proved there was a market there. But it's relatively easy to develop that, a new service through the what the European Commission calls its motorways of the sea policy, which allows uh, member states and neighbouring countries to develop uh, sea corridors by tender. So there's nothing to stop the Scottish government doing that. And I think people like Kenny McCaskill uh, are asking the Scottish government to do that now, to develop a motorway of the sea. Uh, I've worked on a project also to develop uh, Kukenzi as a modern cruise ferry port. The fourth is, 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 is uh, the capital city region, if you like, is is only is one of the only capital port cities I've seen in the world that doesn't have a modern cruise and ferry terminal. <laughs> yeah. So we we we, we still uh, berth cruise ships uh, as we did when I was an agent in Leith uh, back in the seventies out in the middle of the river, the bigger cruise ships, and then tender everybody ashore like a less developed country does. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's no good for turnarounds because the cruise industry, what you really want to do is the turnarounds where the ship comes in and everybody comes off and a whole series of new passengers comes on. So you get then all the hotel business, all the airport business, all the other uh, auxiliary business and supplying the ship with you know millions of pounds worth of goods and yeah. other things for its next trip. The ferry service is absolutely vital to Scotland now because we see with Brexit the shortage of truck drivers uh, and the congestion in the channel ports and the problems with England's motorway system. Scotland's at the end of that supply chain and that supply chain is broken already. So Scotland needs its motorways of the sea. Uh, and there's another project developing uh, by a guy called John Burley on the West Coast, a Guruk to Spain and France connection. 
uh, via Ireland as well. Uh, Ireland, as you probably know, has about seven or eight connections to the continent, France and Spain mainly. Uh, mm. Scotland, Scotland has none. <laughs> so, so we need to do something. The other big project I worked on was to develop a container transshipment terminal in Scotland. And that was at Scapa Flow in Orkney, which has natural water depth for the very biggest container ships. Mm-hmm. And this was a, also a development uh, sought by the company that developed a similar facility in Malta, Malta Freeport, uh, Marslex Lock, which is a, a container transshipment terminal right in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, but he, they wanted to develop a container transshipment here in Orkney for transatlantic business uh, and other traffic, intra-regional traffic, Baltic, North Atlantic, Ireland, Viberia, also connecting via Scapa Flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this project was prevented by by the, the Scottish government and the UK government from mm-hmm. happening, uh, mainly because UK uh, transport policy is about pushing all the activity to, to England, to the south of England. And that's that's the other situation where we need independence to overcome that uh, that bias, if you like, against mm-hmm. development in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how do you see getting the resources necessary? I mean, you hear the constantly referring, how are you going to pay for it? But uh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, what do you see as the way that if, if Scotland becomes independent, this, obviously the sooner the better, uh, the ways of financing it, the ways of, uh, cons- and, and and what would you see as the top priorities? You know, mm-hmm. what, what well, port, where, yeah. uh, how, that that kind of thing. Well, these ports uh, are quite easily developed uh, internationally by tender. Uh, all a, all a, a transport authority or a government agency has to do is is is, is specify what it wants. It mm. wants a port, so it, it specifies that port. It, it then tenders for operators to come in and put in place the mostly the superstructure. So it's a kind of partnership. The European model is a or the global port model is more of a partnership. The UK port privatization policy just simply sold the ports to mm. private equity funds, offshore Cayman Island or wherever. So they're all owned by offshore private equity groups and they're also regulated by these groups. So the port authorities were privatized in Scotland mm. and in the rest of the UK. And this is totally uh, uh, abnormal internationally uh, where all governments internationally keep hold of the port authority function and also control the port planning. And, and port pricing as well, because port pricing can completely uh, destroy an economy. If 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 private or private equity funds are in charge of ports and port pricing, then they can they can make an economy uncompetitive just through very very high uh, port uh, pricing practices. So and that's what's happened in in Scotland, where the taxation levied on ships, uh, tankers for example, has always been quite significant, and also cruise ships. Mm. Uh, so it drives business away. So this privatization model we have in Scotland, which is from Thatcherism, basically, yeah. but it's also, I think I mentioned to you, it's what my continental academic friends call the Anglo-Saxon model of port privatization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the way we view it in France, you know. <laughs> where, where private monopolies are, public monopolies are basically given to offshore private equity funds. Yeah, and, and and nobody knows who owns these funds as well. So nobody and, really and, knows and, who and, owns Scotland's major ports. And, and, and I know you described it as an anomaly, but uh, I mean, you know, just if you could describe for our viewers that, I mean, is it completely unique in the world? And, and you were saying, I don't know, people from Holland or yeah. you know, elsewhere would say, what are you doing? You know, I well, mean, what, what happens in these countries, including the U.S. as well, is that the ports and, uh, are, are generally owned by the state. Mm-hmm. So the port real estate is owned by the state. 
The state then plans what terminals it wants, and then it advertises a lease for the private terminal operators to come and lease a piece of terminal. Uh, so the Port Authority is the state, and this is the same in Rotterdam, Hamburg, Los Angeles, New York, Rio de Janeiro, Dubai, wherever. So uh, the Port Authority, the public sector control the infrastructure. Yeah. And they lever in the investment from a leasee, from, a, from, a, 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 from somebody who's taking the lease on the terminal. Mm. Uh, that's what happens. But what, what's done in the UK, what's been done in Scotland, is the ports and the port authorities were just sold and not, are now owned by offshore equity funds. Mm-hmm. So there's no planning of port infrastructure. There's no modernization of port infrastructure. There's a self-regulation which taxes every ship coming in as it wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, what we see is no trade growth. Yeah. Yeah. We see no trade growth because we can't grow the trade anyway because there's not the, the port infrastructure to take it. Yeah. Or all, all these equity funds do is use uh, is sweat the asset. They sweat yeah. the asset until it's broken, <laughs> or until they can sell it to some other equity fund. Yeah, that's and the same with airports. And, and what would you, what would you, uh, in terms of actually creating, an, uh, what would, what, uh, upon Scotland becoming independent, what is the first thing you do, first of all, to give Scotland the power to regulate, or you know, to to you know, to yeah. own the to own the area and uh, to own the zo- yeah. uh, the port zones and all that? And where would you build ports and what types of ports and you know uh, that that kind of thing? You know, you know, what are, what are the most strategically important places that ports should be built? The, the, the former head of transport for Highlands Islands Enterprise, Roy Peterson, and I wrote a, a port maritime policy paper for the SNP Westminster Group mm-hmm. uh, three years ago, I think it was. And they've done nothing with it. But it basically said set, set up a marine agency, a marine authority, and, and it, it set out all the areas that that marine uh, transport authority should deal with. And the strategic port assets that were required initially was the development of a modern European gateway port at Kikenzi on the brownfield site of the former power station. It's the only site in, in, uh, on the fourth that you can do this with a trimodal terminal, uh, mm-hmm. rail access, road access and river access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the closest point to the continent for a ferry service. And that's very important. Mm-hmm. The other uh, aspect was to create an international container transshipment hub at Scapa Flow for the transatlantic trade and also for intra-European trade, Baltic trade uh, and and Irish sea trade as well, and also for the future traffic that's going to develop through the transarctic. Mm -hmm. So these are the two main opportunities. Uh, All it requires is is the Scottish government to put in place the policy, the agency. In terms of funding for these ports, most of the funding can be brought in through a tender process where the international terminal operators would take the long-term lease on the terminals and develop them in partnership with the public sector. And could the Scottish government do that even under devolve with under the devolved powers that they have, even short of being you know becoming independent? Is that something yeah, they could do? Yes, there's, there's actually a question I asked uh, some years ago, and and Keith Brown also asked the Ministry in London when he was Transport Minister was who has responsibility for ports in Scotland, and he was told it's Holyrood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's nothing to stop uh, them developing a ports policy where the UK government would come and object, probably not that they could do much about it, is by saying uh, international relations is a reserve matter. <laughs> and I think Holyrood's had its knuckles wrapped before of doing anything international. 
uh, uh-huh. it can only do domestic things, <laughs> yeah. like domestic no, exactly. ferries, yeah, but no, not international. <laughs> so, yeah, you, uh, don't, you don't want the Scottish government to get any ideas in their head about being no, like... No, that's um, it. They don't want to get ideas above their station, <laughs> exactly. which takes us back to the colonial administration ethos, uh, thesis, which basically it is. If you're being told you can't deal with international things, you can't have international arrangements, uh, but there's nothing to stop them uh, tendering and getting investors in ports. Yeah. And there's nothing to stop them having a port policy to develop uh, trade. Okay. Uh, in fact, that's what they should be doing, but they're not. They're, they're, in that sense, they're entirely negligent. And they've not been, they've not been willing to address the, the legacy of the UK port privatisation policy that's holding Scotland back. What is the difference between free port and green ports? <laughs> it's a question that came up. I I, I wasn't aware of. I, I, I'm no. not. A, okay, yeah. Uh, free ports have been around for centuries. Uh, most container transshipment terminals are free ports. They're actually what it usually means is there's a free trade zone connected to the port. So usually within the port estate, it's a free trade zone. It means that people can then import goods, add value to them, and export them again without any duty. So a good example might be the big car terminals in Zeebrugge. Trade cars come in, they're discharged from the ship, they're put ashore, and then they're PDI, they're, things are added to them, things are changed to the cars. Then the cars are re-exported. But they've, they've added maybe a few thousand, uh, a couple of thousand euros of value. So what they're importing is increased in value. So what the free trade area usually does for a, a host country is it grows the value of exports. Uh, and that's what it should be. Uh, that is particularly suitable for transshipment. And that's where the, the Orkney project was very interesting because quite a few sectors, uh, such as uh, drinks, seafood, other sectors, were interested in doing transshipment there and storage uh, of goods uh, for different markets. The Baltic, Iberia, uh, Scandinavia and so on uh, was, was very interesting in, in that. So I think that's very important. The, the, the new concept we've seen in recent years is the green port, uh, you know, low emission port. It's basically a low emission port. Or, and, and this is where Kukenzi would be particularly suitable because you've got the, the substation there for the offshore wind farms off the Fife Coast. So the cable comes into Kukenzi. That's where all this renewable energy is coming in. So it can be used uh, for uh, alongside uh, uh, powering of ships when they berth. They don't have to run on their engines. They can plug into the system, the shore system. And also, you could have a, a land-based system uh, for handling cargo, for example, using electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. You could also, if there's barges going up river to Grangemouth or across to Fife uh, with containers uh, for the whiskey industry and so on, these could be electric barges like they're introducing on the Rhine from Rotterdam mm-hmm. and Zeebrugge as well. Mm-hmm. So a green port uh, could be mixed with a free port uh, and a free trade zone. I, I don't think the, the Scottish government has acted very well on its decisions on green ports and free ports. It doesn't really understand that the underlying problem is our port infrastructure is obsolete. Mm -hmm. The underlying problem is our port infrastructure is not competitive. And if your port infrastructure is not competitive, you won't have any trade. (laughs) And that's why Scotland's trade is not growing. It's we are not a competitive economy. That and other factor aspects like high energy costs, high energy costs, is another aspect in an independent country. We should really drop down the energy cost because that's what's killed our industry. We've we've been resource rich for generations, but our our industry has been high cost. 
because of UK pricing policy and and privatization policies. So this is why our economy is underdeveloped. It's not got the levers uh, that we need for energy, for transport, for trade. And trade's the only thing that's going to really grow the economy. Trade is a big, big factor, and global trade is, is 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 well with globalization. It's grown enormously, and that for most countries that's been a big benefit. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to get in one one last thing uh, before we uh, wrap these thing uh, wrap this uh, program up. Um, someone was asking about uh, how would we go about uh, bringing. Uh, you know, the Scottish case to the UN. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the decolonization uh, mm. commission that they have. Uh, I don't know if it ha- would have to be the, you know, the, uh, it w- would have to be the Scottish government or uh, how do you see that? I mean, could could normal Scottish citizens petition the, you know, the UN to, you know, um, you know, uh, consider Scotland as a, you know, a subject to decolonization or how, how do you see that? My understanding is that any individual can can approach the UN <laughs> if it wishes. But the, the fact remains, we've elected uh, national representatives to represent us. And uh, they want independence, or so they say. Uh, so they should be searching for any means for independence. Uh, but as I said, for a number of reasons, they're not doing that. They're actually uh, holding independence at bay and delaying independence, which actually creates more problems for people in the long run. Uh, and uh, the situation will will get worse. It won't get better. So they have to address this. They have the options uh, to to end the treaty uh, uh, based alliance uh, through a majority of national representatives. As Kenny McCaskill said, this can be done through uh, MPs, MSPs, and councillors joining together uh, in a constitutional convention. That's and that's also what Ambassador Craig Murray uh, has suggested in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think th- that's a very valid mechanism. Uh, Scotland constitutionally is in a treaty-based alliance and has sovereignty, so shouldn't necessarily need recourse to the UN decolonization process. But <laughs> but <laughs> if if somehow Scotland's sovereignty is not respected uh, and, and, the, and neither the treaty or sovereignty is respected and Scotland is held, uh, in a sense, by force... Uh, then that would be the time to approach the UN because that would mean that Scotland, uh, I don't think there would be then any doubt that Scotland is a held territory, otherwise a colony. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, uh, anything else you want to say before we say goodbye to our, um, you know, maybe a bit of note of optimism in some sense? Or Yeah, yeah. I think the, probably just a, maybe a, a quote, if I may, from Franz Fanon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, what we are seeing uh, with the light of experience is, is, is the symptoms of a great weakness about understanding what independence really is. Uh, uh, and what Fanon says is, while the native thought he could pass without transition from the status of a colonized person to that of a self-governing citizen of an independent nation, he made no real progress along the road to knowledge his consciousness remained rudimentary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the message I would say to the politicians who advocate independence is, is, is not just their consciousness, but the consciousness of the people remains in that kind of rudimentary na- uh, nature. Yeah. We have to understand the, the, the state we're in. Uh, 
<laughs> for want of a better term. Yeah. And, and we're in a bit of a state. Yeah. <laughs> so not only not only the UK state. <laughs> <laughs> we're in quite a state. <laughs> so uh, I think that's the message. We have to understand our predicament and then try to pick the pieces through that uh, uh, and 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 extract ourselves in, in that way. Okay. Okay, on that uh, positive note, I'll, uh, I'll say goodbye uh, Say goodbye to our viewers, and thank you so much, Alf Baird, uh, for being with us, and I hope you'll come back sometime soon. Thank you, Mark. All the best. All right.